This is Loudspeaker. Welcome to Connecting a Better World, where we spend time meeting some of the most incredible human beings who make this world a better place. We will learn how each individual took their ideas, mission, and purpose to create and serve others in business and organizations that surround social good, social entrepreneurship, and social impact, and find out how we, together, can further connect others to help. I am your host, Dr. Natalie Phillips. Today, I will be talking with Sarah Simons, founder and director of Her Future Coalition, an international charity whose mission is to break the cycle of poverty and exploitation by providing education and services to survivors and the most vulnerable girls. Sarah is an author, former composer of music for TV and film, as well as a former art teacher in New York City. She is passionate about empowering survivors to be change makers in their families and communities. Her Future Coalition was founded by Sarah Simons and John Berger in 2005, a married couple who built the organization from the ground up using their personal savings and dedicated community of friends. As a woman-led organization, Her Future Coalition provides compassion-led solutions which break the cycle of trauma and establish a new cycle of trust, well-being, choice, and independence. Over the years, they have saved thousands of survivors in India, Nepal, Cambodia, and Thailand, some of who joined their programs and are now managing the programs working as trainers and mentors to newly rescued girls. I am here with Sarah Simons. I'm so excited to learn so much more about what you're doing, but I want to start with just, you know, tell me a little bit more about you. Like, where did you grow up? Did you have a role model or a mentor that you looked up to that was just um, involved in philanthropy or giving back? Like, what what are you all about? Oh, I love that question. Um, well, I came over to America from England with my parents when I was five, and I grew up just outside of Detroit. Um, and I feel like a big inspiration for me was my parents. They were both very socially conscious and taught us from a very young age about you know, racial injustice and just being aware um, of the privileges that you have and that other people don't have them. I remember having that conversation when I was like five or six and about Vietnam and, and the violence and poverty in the world and how it, how it contributes to you know, so many ills that we all face. So I feel like I, I had a very lucky start in being made aware of these issues early. My parents were feminists and you know very much like you can you can do anything and, and empowered me and and my brother um to do whatever we wanted in the world so it was a good, it was definitely a good start yeah yeah and you know with her future coalition because i'm so excited to learn so much more about this you know when did this start where did it start how did you get this great idea because you have a different background you know you were kind of i think in a tv and film i i saw that you wrote wrote a song and it was in a uh, in a movie you know and then you're an art teacher so what took you from that into forming her future coalition well it was definitely a very unexpected twist in my, you know, in my journey, um, because I was raising two kids. They were very small when I started and I was 
yes, writing songs for film and television. And mostly I was writing songs for soap operas and mostly my songs were the love and death scenes of the soap operas. So it really was a completely different type of lifestyle. And my husband was an investment banker and we were just on this whole pathway. And then one of my songs got into a film. The film was in the Tribeca Film Festival. And I went down to see it. And while I was there, I had the very good fortune to see this documentary about human trafficking of young girls between Nepal and India. And I was just devastated by this movie, incredibly moved and incredibly inspired. And I decided um, I really needed to do something to help this cause. And so I started by volunteering with existing organizations and asking lots of questions, doing lots of research. And then about a year after that, I was invited by the group I was volunteering with to go to Nepal. And again, a very life-changing experience, meeting survivors, meeting mothers, you know, who had lost their daughters and they're carrying, you know, a dog-eared Polaroid of their missing child, seeing traffickers, seeing survivors, people, just the whole thing really deepened my commitment and, um, and gave me an idea of what, where I might be able to be of service to the issue. So I had been asking a lot. And while I was on that trip, I asked the director of the shelter home where I was visiting, what do you need? What's working? Where do you, where could you use some extra help? And she asked for help, um, finding, incomes and and professions for the girls who were trafficked to them and rescued at a later age. So when they're, re- when they're rescued really young, they can go back into school and get a regular education, maybe college, and they can rejoin society that way. But for girls who are rescued a bit later, like 16 and up, and they maybe have never been to primary school at all, it was really, really hard for them. So sh- she asked me to work on that issue. And that's where we started. And we started by just buying and selling the beautiful handicrafts that the survivors were making in the shelters. Um, We did it in Nepal and then we expanded into India a year later and to Cambodia and Thailand. We did that for several years and it was great, but we also saw the limitations of that in that um, we really wanted to find ways for girls to move out of the shelter and live independently and the income wasn't enough. Plus the the projects were based in the shelter home. Um, So over the years, We expanded into other kinds of job training and employment projects, education, and eventually building shelters so that survivors would have a safe place to to live while they were healing and rebuilding their lives. Mm -hmm. So the girls that were rescued and had these shelters, they stayed then in Nepal and India and Cambodia and Thailand. You didn't actually rescue and like bring them back over to the U.S. or anything like that, but there were things on the ground there that they had a safe place to go and to recover as well? So we did everything that we did um, in partnership with local organizations and really trying to to support and, and build up and improve on what was there rather than reinventing it or coming in with our own ideas. We really tried to take a humble approach and, and see what was working and, and where we could add to that. Um, so the girls that we work with are, you know, from Asia. So we didn't um, try to bring them out, but in all cases, they would hope to return to their place of origin. So if it was possible, um, you know, for them to go back to their home and village, then that's the first choice after they get some initial you know, crisis management support. Um, but sometimes it isn't possible for them to return home because mm-hmm. they, the family may have been involved in trafficking them. The 
issues that made them vulnerable um, may still exist. And unless those are properly addressed, they're going to remain vulnerable and you have an issue of re-trafficking, recidivism. Um, and in some cases, girls were so little, they didn't remember where they were from and it wasn't possible to reunite them or to find their home. And there's so much trauma, obviously, that can really interfere with a person's memory. So in some cases, girls were in rescue shelters and they needed to stay there until they reached adulthood. And so in that case, we would have a nice long time to work with them um, and to be able to give them the tools that when they are ready, when they are old enough and they're ready to live on their own, that they can be self-sustaining, that they understand their rights and the laws around trafficking, around, around human rights, so that they wouldn't be vulnerable to trafficking or any other form of exploitation. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a lot of emotional healing that needs to take place as well and dealing with that trauma. Um, our project is very long-term. It's a, it's a deep intervention that takes a long time. We don't have a quick fix. I don't think anyone does with this level of trauma. And we're dealing with, you know, so many systemic issues as well um, that they need to overcome. So when we walk with someone, we walk with them for a long time. And so for many of these girls that were in the shelter, it's good that we have, you know, some years to be able to work with them. And then ultimately they move out. And um, we're able to build these beautiful lives out in the world, you know, getting professional careers, going to college. We've got someone in med school. Um, they are doing the incredible things in the world and also just getting married, having children, getting our apartment and all the things that we all want in life, the simple things too. Trafficking in India and throughout the world has its roots in economic disempowerment, and certainly when we're talking about sex trafficking, it has its roots in the low status of women. When I found out that there were just millions and millions of men and women and children who were living in slavery, and that so many of them were young girls, just the most vulnerable people, who'd already been so marginalized and so poor, and it made them vulnerable, and they were being sold at such a young age, into brothels and suffering unimaginable torture and abuse and dehumanization. And that even after all that, getting rescued, many of them were being rejected by their families, blamed for what was done to them, outcast from society, and, and were just destined to really keep repeating the cycle of exploitation because of those issues. I was absolutely compelled to do something about it. You know, why did you feel it was so important to do this? Because it's been 15 years, right? You and your husband started this part, your part um, of helping out, created Her Future Coalition in 2005. Um, you know, I have so many questions because, you know, when people go and they get this spark and they're like, oh my gosh, like, I feel like I need to help. Like, you actually did it. You know, that spark can definitely die out and then you go back to your regular life and you don't think about it. You know, you were in the middle of your career. You had kids kids that you were raising, like, why did you feel it was so important to, you know, do something like Her Future Coalition and walk away from maybe some of the things that you and your husband were doing? And how did this affect your kids as well? Well, I mean, I think the kids were a really big part of it because I think as a mother, and they were three and four, you know, when we started, as a mother, I think that was where it hit me the hardest, just, you know, seeing young girls who had been taken from their homes or in some cases betrayed by their families and were never going to be able to go back and, and they endure these 
horrific things you just could never imagine happening to any child. So I think it really hit me on, on that level, and that was a very motivational. And then when I went to Nepal, as I mentioned, I met a lot of survivors, but for me, the most profound moment was meeting a mother who came to the shelter home carrying the Polaroid of her missing daughter. She'd been gone for 11 days. And there were just so many like levels to the story. Certainly her face, like looking as a mother into a mother's face and kind of imagining how you would feel in that, in her situation, knowing that in all likelihood, she, she wouldn't be able to find her daughter, you know, and there's like 15 or 20 Nepali girls going every single day across to India. And most of them never returns that kind of awareness with this mother was the, either the husband or the mother's new partner. I couldn't completely figure all that out. And the people working at the shelter home, just, they had the expertise and they immediately spotted. They're like, Oh yeah, he's, he's involved. They could just, they could just kind of tell. And um, so understanding that this is something that does have these, these many layers and these many levels and that has to be addressed um, in, in, in complicated ways. And it's a complicated, you know, it's not a simple problem of people being snatched off the street, like in the movie Taken. Right. It's, it's, it's something that's, you know, deep in the community and is related to women's, the disempowerment of women and racial minorities and caste and the dowry system and all these other systems are at play within it. And this deep sense of filial responsibility that a lot of um, Indian and Nepali girls feel so that they are trafficked and a family member was involved. They may feel like they have to stay and they can't even run away because their parents wanted them to do this. So they have to try to help their family. So all of those levels of things had to be taken into account. And that in that moment kind of, it was very startling um, and, and it brought a lot of those things to my awareness and why I stuck with it is an easy answer. It was definitely the girls themselves. You know, I, I have so much respect for people that work with populations where it's really, really hard and you maybe aren't going to see very much progress. That is not my situation. I work, I am very fortunate to work with, a group that responds wonderfully, you know, when there's an intervention, these girls tend to take the help that is offered and run a mile with it. They do so much and they are, they are so resilient, um, courageous, strong, and giving back. They all want to pay it forward. And so many of them already are, they have prevented sisters from being trafficked. They have pulled mothers out of the red light area, you know, stopped a niece from being trafficked. They're speaking out. They were in the women's March, they're supporting all these other people. They're taking leadership in their family and community. Mm -hmm. And so many of them, you know, have the wish either now or in the future to be able to work in a nonprofit or start their own nonprofit and mm -hmm. work with different types of vulnerable women. Like they've That's all got amazing. a different vision or some people want to work with animals or some want to work with women in the villages or with children or with disabled people. It's really neat how, how each one of them has, has that same wish to give back. So once I started working with them, it was pretty easy to keep going because I kept seeing the magnification of the love and effort that I put in um, coming back to me in these women and in these girls and in our amazing local staff who are all a huge part of it and wouldn't be possible without them.
Yeah. Okay. So I have a mother question and also, you know, to turn inward. So if your kids were three or four, you know, and they've watched you do this, and I know that you get so much back from the girls that you've helped, you know, empower and, and, you know, teach that their lives are limitless. I know it's had an impact on your kids as well because they grew up in it. You know, if they were three and four, they're, you know, what, 18 to 20 ish or whatever, you know, now. And so looking in, I have two questions. I'm like, okay, so number one, share with, uh, share with my listeners what, if you can see that their paths now that they're probably in college or they're planning their futures, right. Moving out of the house has this shaped their future. And then my other question too, is a little bit before that, um, when do you have these conversations with your own children about safety issues without scaring them? Like I have a motherly question and then also kind of more of how do you see their futures and how has this impacted them as well? Well, I think the, they were so little when we started that it literally is practically in their DNA. You know and I mean? They, they, I remember when they were maybe five and six and my, my daughter, Maya, and she was, she had laid out a blanket on the floor and she put all her toys on the blanket. And I was like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm, I'm selling these products to help poor women. <laughs> it's so cute. She was like acting out, you know, what we were doing at that time. And it's really beautiful way. And as they got older, you know, they have always been extremely socially conscious and, you know, we all, we all had to, I won't say make sacrifices, but let's just say our lifestyle changed. You know, my husband was an investment banker and we had a very financially abundant life and, um, you know, all the things that go along with that. And then very, he, he decided to leave his career as well and help me to get this nonprofit started. And so it totally changed. We had to sell our house and then the stock, you not the stock market, the housing market crashed and we couldn't sell it for like two years. It got really, really stressful. We were practically going to, you know, default and it all worked out. We did sell it, but there was just a lot of, you know, financial stress and changes in our lifestyle over the years that the kids obviously noticed. And we we had to talk about very openly and honestly, you know, we, we decided that we wanted something different for ourselves and for you. Um, And your legacy is not going to be, you know, an inheritance in that way, or, you know, private schools and big houses or any of that, but it's going to be this legacy of love and sisterhood and brotherhood that we've created and we've given you, you know, hundreds of sisters and brothers. And that's, that's the legacy. And I think that they really have embraced that. My daughter's studying psychology and wants to be um, a child psychologist and therapist and work with very vulnerable populations. And my son wants to do medical research, but I think that they both, you know, they've been to India, they've met these sisters and they really will be carrying this forward in their heart in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. How I told them about it <laughs> was, you know, like I said, when Maya was five or six, I just, we just talked about poverty. We just talked to them about poverty and you know how it's certain parts of the world, girls don't have opportunities in education. We just started with that. Um, and then when they were nine or 10, we started to talk about slavery and there, there are some great books for grade school kids that kind of deal with slavery and child labor. Um, there's a book called Iqbal, I-Q-B-A-L, that's about, you know, eight or nine-year-old level that talks about uh, slavery in the carpet loom business. And then um, there's actually an American girl doll who was in child labor. Oh, and wow. so we, we kind of use those books um, 
to dig a little bit deeper into the type of work we were doing. Um, but we didn't talk about sex trafficking and rape yet, just, you know, didn't seem quite ready. But when they were 10 and 11, um, you know, the, the, the written materials about the work we do is all over the house. I'm like, they are going to notice it. And um, it's time to have, you know, that talk. And so then we, you know, we, we sat with them and, and explained exactly what we do, um, which was really, really distressing for them to hear. And maybe especially for Maya, my, I have a son and a daughter. It's, it was very distressing for both of them, but I think just shocking for an 11 and 10 year old to kind of even imagine that, you know, what sex is really. And then that it could be forced on someone their own age. Um, so that was a really difficult conversation, but, and, and one that we, we had to ha keep having over a period of time. Um, but again, there's, there are some great books and um, resources out there. Like for high school, there's a great book called Sold. Um, which is written for young adults and, and helps to talk about sex trafficking in a really sensitive way. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. I mean, I have these conversations as well. And I was just curious when you do have it around the house, how early, early does that come up and how do you approach it as well? I mean, I'm sure that the kids, uh, kind of were a little more curious as well as they got older, but it's great to hear the age. It's great to hear that there's some really good resources out there for people who are listening as well to just start to have these types of conversations because it isn't just also in other countries. It's in our own country as well, which is, I mean, it's not shocking because I know that a lot of people know about it, but it's just a matter of like, how do you take it from where you were that it just hit you one day? Like, this is where I'm going to dedicate my life because it's so important and I can make a change and I can make an impact and whatever else surrounds you with that impact, you know, is, is just a bonus because you were so focused on trying to make sure that this was something that you're going to work on. And I think everything else that, whether it's people that work with you, your own family, you know, the girls that you're working with as well, I just think that it just has that ripple effect that it's going to get larger and larger and there's going to be a lot bigger impact as this goes on. Um, um, so, you know, looking back at your organization, what are some statistics that you're proud of uh, and maybe lead into some of the services that your organization provides for these girls? Well, I am proud that we've been able to walk with about 5,000 girls along their journey um, and that most of the girls and women that we work with stay in the program for at least three to five years. So it's really, like I say, a really long-term intervention. Mm -hmm. And of the girls that we've been able to educate through at least 10th grade, none have been trafficked or re-trafficked. Um, really joyful that we've built a shelter and um, we've expanded three others and continue to provide support to the hundreds of girls living in those shelter homes. And mm -hmm. recently we opened three red light resource centers um, for kids who are living with their moms, but to be able to make sure that they have a safe place to study and to rest and to play before and after school. It's open until quite late at night. And I guess I'm most proud of all, it's not really a statistic, but of some of our girls like Saba, who is, um, she grew up in a you know project for street children and now she's in her third year of medical school and she's going to be a gynecologist. She lives in, a Muslim community where no one is getting OBGYN care, you know, e even when you're pregnant because all the gynecologists are male and they're embarrassed mm. or it's, you know, culturally not appropriate and not comfortable for them. So she wants to change that dynamic and proud of Anjali. Anjali was trafficked when she was 12 from a village in Nepal to Calcutta 
and she suffered there for a couple of years before she was rescued. She is now in her third year of college studying education and she's about to go back to her village and open a school to prevent the trafficking of the next generation. Oh. And I had the great joy this summer of writing a book with her, co-writing a book of her, about her story. It's called Standing in the Way and it'll be coming out in January. And um, it, she is one of the most inspiring and wise people you could ever wish to meet. She just oh. had a baby during COVID, which wasn't easy, but he's adorable. <laughs> and I'm proud of Priyanka. Priyanka was, um, she grew up, she was like a pavement dweller, they called him in Calcutta, but her family was homeless and lived kind of under a tarp in the city. When she was 10 or 11, they sent her to work at the train station, begging and sweeping the cars. And from there, she was trafficked to a brothel in Mumbai and was there for several years. But she somehow managed to escape through this tiny window in the bathroom. And even though the police are often very complicit in trafficking and come to the brothels for free services, so it's really hard to trust them, mm -hmm. she took the risk of going to the police station and getting the police, and they came back and rescued three other girls. Wow. And she is in one of our job training programs in Calcutta and truly another very, very, very inspiring person. And during COVID, um, she figured out a way to get us back in touch with some girls that we used to work with back in Mumbai that we'd lost touch with. And she kind of created all these beautiful connections for us. So all of these women that we work with are just walking, talking miracles. And oh. they are definitely the thing I'm the proudest of and my life's work. Yeah, absolutely. So let's also talk about these handicrafts a little bit. <clears throat> um, I know that there is a shop that you have available. We are going to post the website in the show notes. But tell me a little bit more about the jewelry and about some of the other crafts, uh, handicrafts, I should say, um, and the work that these girls are doing. So, you know, as I mentioned in our early years, we were buying the products that girls were making in the shelter homes. But it was, we realized there was a limitation just on, you know, the profit was low and the, the income was not super high. So we were trying to look for jobs that girls could do who had low literacy, the girls who aren't going to be able to go to medical school or college, um, what they would be able to do that could earn them a really good income. And so we came upon goldsmithing, which is a job traditionally done only by men in Asia and usually certain specific families. So our the women that we train take pride in being pioneers as some of South Asia's first women goldsmiths. We are an all-woman production unit of about, there's uh, 20 girls in one location and 10 in two other locations, so 40 women overall. And they are incredibly skilled, um, working primarily in sterling silver, and they make beautiful jewelry that tells the story of India and the story of their lives and, and connecting, and it's, it's, it's a therapeutic artistic expression as well as being a very good livelihood for them and some of the women in that program make an income um, comparable to that of a college graduate and they've been able to buy houses save lots of money you know again rescue others help others educate their own children and really create a very different trajectory for the next generation yeah. So a lot of my listeners, you know, they might want to help out. And I saw that you have home parties, like you suggested home parties or community events, which I thought was brilliant because a lot of people listen and they're like, well, I want to help. So I'll either donate or I'll go and I'll buy, you know, some of these products or, or something like that. So talk to me a little about 
about if somebody wanted to help out even more, what like a home party would be all about and how does that work? I noticed that you guys did um, a few of those things as well. Yes. I mean, and right now I think more than ever, we really could use, I mean, of course, any nonprofit could always use financial support. I mean, it goes without saying. And um, donating, sponsoring a child's education, buying jewelry is all incredibly helpful. But if you did have a little bit of man within your personal time, um, having an event, whether virtual or in person, where you could bring people together and we can sh give you some resources like films, um, survivor stories that you can read, you know, lots of beautiful imagery. And it can be a wonderful way to give us a little bit of extra exposure and get the word out there about what we're doing. Um, I think that's a real need for us right now. We recently had a wonderful opportunity that one of our um, girls in the red light area was able to interview Malala and Michelle Obama for an article for International Day of the Girl. So that could be a great you know, way to kind of get people to come into the event and maybe share that or act it out. Um, and... And yeah, and then once people are there, just telling them about the work and giving them the opportunity to either donate or buy jewelry. We have volunteer trips and immersions where people can come to India and Nepal with us and um, really interact up close and personal with our staff mm -hmm. and, and the girls and do all kinds of um, really cool therapeutic arts projects while people are there. But also we educate and share a lot of information about the issue and the, its many complex layers and and our work and, and other deeper ways that people can get involved. That's awesome. So you can donate, you can go to the website, donate, you can host these parties, you can purchase different, um, uh, I guess, artisan types of crafts that they made, which is, they're beautiful. I went and I looked at them and I'm going to spend more time looking so that um, I can help support. Um, but there's, and then you've got, um, obviously, you know, if people wanted to make the trek and actually meet some of the girls or work with them there too, that's a possibility. So that's great. That's awesome. Um, is okay. there anything? I would, I would love it if people would um, check out my book I wrote with Anjali, mm -hmm. which is um, currently on Amazon for pre-order. It's coming out January 11th. And it's called Standing in the Way. But maybe you could put that in the show notes. Yes. As well. We will definitely put that in the show notes, that link to the book. And um, yeah, is there anything else that we didn't cover with Her Future Coalition? This is exciting. Thank you so much. I, wow, I feel like we've covered so much. Um, I guess I'd like to just, you, you had asked me one question, you know, before the show, which is what's one piece of advice, you know, to share with listeners. And I feel like in these times, right now especially, you know, there is a lot of overwhelm and there's a lot of despair. And it's, it's easy with all these issues in the world to feel very overwhelmed and powerless about them. And that can be very paralyzing. So I just really want to share this, this folk tale that I heard when I first started working in India, which really has uh, inspired me along the way. And it's about this little boy and he's in the village and he needs to go to the next village, but there's tigers and it's super dark. And, you know, there's probably pits you could fall in and he doesn't, He's afraid of going and his grandfather gives him a lantern and he's like, but this only, you know, this only lights three feet. How, you know, it's like a mile away. And the grandfather says, well, walk three feet. And he walks three feet and then you see the light now lights another three feet. <sighs> and so I just feel like we need to just take action, take some small action every day. And I don't just mean clicktivism, you know, expressing your views on social media is fine and good, but that isn't going to change things. You need to take some small action 
outside of your phone <laughs> that lights the next three feet for you and shows you the next way. And I feel like all of us together light those lanterns, things are going to get fixed and things are going to get better. And maybe it's not going to be, you know, immediate and you're going to have failures. You're going to have setbacks. I've had so many of those <laughs> and we continue to, of course, all of us, but I do truly believe that, you know, together lighting those lanterns, things are going to get better and collectively we're going to make a really positive change, but only if we put one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward. Yes, absolutely. I am a hundred percent on board with that as well. I think it's about all about spread, spreading positivity. I think it's all about continuing to take the action and, you know, and it's exactly that continuing. So, you know, you take one step of action. It takes at least a couple steps to get that momentum going so that you create a streak, right? And so um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for what you do. I love your energy. I love that you decided to do this in your life. And again, it's one of those ripple effects that I'm hoping that some of my listeners that listen to this will get involved or, you know, maybe it sparks something in their own life that they thought, oh my gosh, you know, these are regular people that I, I speak to and they are special, but they took that step of action, exactly what you're saying, Sarah, that, you know, took them to that next level to make the impact and the world better. So thank you so much for what you're doing with Her Future Coalition. Thank you so much for having me and, and, and giving voice to what we're, what we're doing out there. Thank you so much for tuning in to Connecting a Better World, and thank you, NOCO FM, for supporting this show. If you connected to something in this episode, we would love to hear from you. Our contact info will be listed in the show notes, as well as you can reach us on our social media channels. Please feel free to share our podcast with your friends and loved ones. For more shows, please tune in to noco.fm online. This is Loudspeaker.